You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Award-winning best-selling author Laura Franz is passionate about all things historical, particularly the 18th century. She is a Christie Award-winning and ECPA best-selling author of more than a dozen novels, including The Frontiersman's Daughter, Courting Morrow Little, The Lacemaker, and A Heart Adrift. She is a proud mom of an American soldier and a career firefighter, a direct descendant of George Hume of Wedderburn Castle, who was exiled in the American colonies for his role in the Jacobite Rebellion. Laura is a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Her stories often incorporate Scottish themes that reflect her family heritage. She lives with her husband in Washington State. Laura, friends, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Well, I'm such an admirer of your podcast, so it's a delight to be here. Thank you. Oh, we're so excited to have you join us. To start off with something fun, if you time traveled to the 18th century, what three things from modern life do you think you'd miss the most? Oh, wonderful question. I can name it right off the bat. Starbucks, air conditioning, and books. (laughs) Books, strange enough, were not that prevalent back then, and I probably would have been one of the middling class that couldn't have afforded many books. So books, definitely. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, people have experienced story in so many different ways by hearing stories that their grandfathers told and stories from visiting people, but it's not quite the same as curling up by yourself and getting into a character's life the way you can in a book. No, we are so spoiled. And this is 2023, of course, and I don't think I've ever seen as much quality fiction and nonfiction coming out as this year. Yeah, we really do have a surplus of good quality fiction and nonfiction. It's really exciting to see all the books. And sometimes I look at them and I'm like, oh, I do not have enough reading time. How do I choose? (laughs) I know we need, I often say, an eighth day just devoted to reading, right? (laughs) We have the day of rest, the day of reading, back to work. (laughs) Eight days. Oh, I hope for that. I think I could get on board with that. Yeah. What is the most interesting project worked on as a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution? Oh, the DAR is truly a force. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is there, it's called the America 250. And in July, as you may or may not have thought of, July 2026, the U.S., our wonderful country, will mark its 250th birthday. And so, you know, DAR descendants or members are descendants of the generation that secured American independence. So it's, we're gearing up toward that celebration, July 14th, or 4th, excuse me, 2026. And we, it's a chance to, it's an opportunity to explore family history and keep that history alive and encourage this generation to find out about that generation you know, we don't tend to know a lot about our ancestors, even our patriots that fought in the American Revolution and won our independence and all that we enjoy today. But sometimes it is, it's not too hard to grab hold of that history. So this is a time of celebration and discovery and exploration of our ancestry and our founding. So I'm really excited about that. 
Oh, that does sound like a cool project because, as you say, we know about George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, but the actual people who made it possible for this country to become its own nation, we don't necessarily know about them so much, even though they may be our great-great-grandfather or grandmother. It, yeah, exactly, because there were women involved in the revolution as supply goods and services, and there were camp fault, women camp followers, ingresses, things like that, that that did their part. So it's fascinating. It's this great complex web that, you know, and these people were quite, they were extraordinarily brave. They did not know if their bid for independence would win, if it was supposed to have failed. France saved us, I think. George Washington as a leader helped save us, so to speak. The Lord was in it too, but in a huge way. And it's sad to me that we've become unmoored from that. And many people are historically just, they just don't know about our history. So that's sad to me. But it one way to, to keep that history alive is through our books, especially our historical novels. And there's just so many to choose from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we looked at the Revolutionary War female spy, Agent 355. That was really just... Yes. Fascinating, especially when you think that may have just been a generic term for women who helped. Exactly. Excellent. Spy network, the, there was the Culper Ring and different spy networks that they say really played a huge part. And some of them were women, extraordinarily intelligent women who were willing to risk their very heads or necks to do this. And it, it just, it's the stuff of novels, truly. So have you ever used any family member or friend to influence your characters? And if so, did they know about it? Well, I wish. I wish my George Hume that inspired the Rose and the Thistle was still alive. They call him Immigrant George. He was my sixth great-grandfather who was booted out of Scotland after the rising of 1715, which we read about in this novel. If not for Immigrant George, I would not be here in the United States. Sometimes I'm sorry he got exiled and was on the wrong side of the war because I would have loved to have been true to my Scottish roots and remained in Scotland. But George, yes, George Hume inspired this novel. And I wish that somehow he knew about it, that we were still were chatting about him today. He was a fascinating character, quite brave too. And his sons went on actually to fight in the American Revolution. So that's another piece of that puzzle. Oh, wow. I wonder what he would think if he knew that one of his descendants was writing a book inspired by his life. Isn't that funny to think about? It is. It's wonderful. You know, would he be delighted? Would he be dismayed? I'm telling this story through an American lens. I I do have Scottish ancestry, obviously. He's my my great-grandfather. Am I doing it justice? I feel like the Lord gives you stories to write And we just do them to the best of our ability with the sources and the research that we have. And But I tell you, I loved writing this novel, probably because of my ancestry and the fact that I was in Scotland this past year and was at Wedderburn Castle. It was still in the family. A very emotional, poignant time. I'm very grateful that I was there. Yes, get to walk where they walked to help shape the story that you're writing. 
Right. The very ground, the very cobblestones they walked on. It's pretty remarkable. Yes. Well, is there anything else especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your readers? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I've learned a lot in the past couple, during the pandemic, the Lord taught me many important lessons about surrender and trust. And I think those worked itself into this novel, The Rose and the Thistle, because I have main characters that are having to deal with basically surrender and trust and obedience. So it's interesting you, as a as the author of the story, we think we're writing a book for readers, but in fact, I think sometimes the book is for us as much as the readers and the Lord. It's an avenue for the Lord to teach us things and to maybe hopefully make us a little more trusting and obedient and wiser than we were. Just my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think it's so much easier when you get on the other side of a hardship and you look past and you're like, or you look into the past and you're just like, oh, okay, that's why that happened. Or that's how he's really used that to come full circle to be something that is good and positive. I know that the pandemic kind of really prompted people who weren't on social media and technology-based ways of reaching their readers, authors, to do that. And so as a whole, our community of writers has gained that experience and they've gained that knowledge. And we're different now and we interact differently than we did pre-pandemic. And I think the Lord is so amazing to see all the ways he has used, used that hardship in history, the pandemic, the recent and still ongoing to, to open people's eyes. I read, and I don't know if it's true, but I think it is that the most Googled word during the pandemic was Jesus. And that was fascinating to me. And since we were forced online, we, I don't think we've ever had as many resources to point us to Christ. Of course, there are always, though, you have to be careful what you read. But I think it awakened a real hunger and maybe somewhat of a revival toward Christ, which was really thrilling to see when the world was shut down. No, I hadn't heard that, but it does make sense. I know we had an explosion in the Christian podcasting community of new shows coming out and listeners as well, because so many people were at home or not able to be in the office. And so that time to find shows and follow podcasts actually. Right. It was never a better time to be heard, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And even though we're going back to work in our everyday lives, the listenership is still there. We still have that that audience. People are still listening. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It just was an example of, like you said, you look back and you see how the things we worried about or prayed about, God was faithful. Yes, he is faithful. And I'm so glad that you're just on the show sharing such a positive outlook of the pandemic because it was difficult and can be very discouraging just to think about. Oh, it is. Yeah. Hope. Hope is our watchword, right? Mm -hmm. Amen. And it's so cool to me to see how God surprises us in what he does with the situations we have. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, The Rose and the Thistle. Yay. (laughs) Always happy to talk books, especially Scottish novels, right? Yes, yes. Oh, man. Just reading the blurb, I'm picturing the setting, so it's perfect. Oh, I know. And if you flip to the back cover, you have Wettermore Castle on the back. 
I was so thrilled when Ravel, my wonderful publisher, did that with the art team. You're just, you, you get this lovely heroine on the front. Some people don't like a headless heroine, but I do because I think it leaves room for the imagination in this beautiful period appropriate gown standing in a field of heather. And if you look closely, you'll see there's a smudge of dirt on her thumb, which speaks to the story. I don't know how that happened, but it, and then on flip it over to the back and you see the castle, very atmospheric setting that my family lost in 1715. So, oh, wow. How perfect. Yes, it was. That was definitely a cover win. I will go ahead and read that back cover copy. In 1715, Lady Blythe Headley's father is declared an enemy of the British crown because of his Jacobite sympathies, forcing her to flee her home in northern England. Secreted to the tower of Wedderburn Castle in Scotland, Lady Blythe awaits who will ultimately be crowned king. But in a house with seven sons and numerous servants, her presence soon becomes known. No sooner has Everard Hume lost his father, Lord Wedderburn, than Lady Headley arrives with the clothes on her back and her mistress in tow. He has his own problems, a volatile brother with dangerous political leanings, an estate to manage, and a very young brother in need of comfort and direction in the wake of losing his father. It would be best for everyone if he could send this misfit heiress on her way as soon as possible. Drawn into a whirlwind of intrigue, shifting alliances, and ambitions, Lady Blythe must be careful whom she trusts. Her fortune, her future, and her very life are at stake. Those who appear to be adversaries may turn out to be allies, and those who pretend friendship may be enemies. So we have a man trying to hold his family and his household together, and a woman just trying to survive, set during the upheaval of a political rebellion. Sounds like a keep-you-awake-past-midnight kind of story. Historical fireworks, yay! Yay! Now, the Jacobite uprising in 1715 is probably not the most well-known bit of history. Can you tell us about what caused it and also how it shaped Britain? It's pretty dry on paper, but I'll try to liven it a little here for audio. In 1715, there occurred one of the most cataclysmic things that had ever happened in Britain. Basically, the Stuart dynasty, there were many Stuart kings, they were mostly Catholic. The Stuart dynasty of Great Britain ended with the death of Queen Anne, who happens to be one of my favorite queens. She's quite complicated. But anyway, the death of Queen Anne brought up the end of the Stuart line. And then the Hanoverians from Germany, they were distant relatives, came to the throne They came over from Germany, left Germany, and all the King Georges began that heralded or ushered in the Georgian era that spanned the 18th century and into the Regency period. Now, the clincher here was that there was an act of settlement in the early part of the 18th century that said only Protestants could hold the throne. So this novel is set right after that happened by this long reigning Stuart Catholic dynasty. And then you have these very Protestant rulers come over from Germany and start that line. And so you can see what a huge explosion it was politically and religiously. And that is a great place to to start a novel, I thought, and it hopefully works. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And such a Little known bit of history. Yeah, the 45 Rising. You've heard of Flora MacDonald and Bonnie Prince Charlie. 
the, you know, that the 45, and I think the Outlander, I have not read that series that has become so popular, has made that even more kind of iconic for Scottish history. But the 45 Rising was much more, is much more well known than the 15 Rising that I'm writing about. That is cool because I think I've read a little bit about the Jacobites, but I do associate it more with the 45 Rebellion and the story of Loch Lomond and the song and its argued origins. But I have one that I've settled on that just in my mind, like really captures the picture of what was going on there. But this is like the precursor. This is setting the stage for what will happen in about 30 years. Exactly. And then the 45 kind of just just finishes that whole part of history. The Stuarts are gone forever and there's no more claimants to that to the crown and the Hanoverians are cemented and then you go on to after all the four Georges, you go on to Queen Victoria and then Queen Elizabeth who just passed. That just was all that direct line. So it feeds into our current history. And we now have King Charles the Third, which King Charles the First was beheaded King Charles II was just a notorious libertine and monarch, and now we have King Charles III. So it really does bring history, makes it more relevant, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, when you know where it's coming from and how it's shaped the world we have today. So why did you choose Wedderburn Castle for your setting? Well, it's my family seat. I'm of Scottish ancestry, and this story was inspired by my sixth great-grandfather, George Hume, who lost Wedderburn Castle. This is the castle that my family lost when they were exiled and transported to the Virginia colony after the rising of 1715. So it has a lot of meaning for me. I've been there. It's actually a working castle today. It went when he lost my George, immigrant, immigrant George, as the family calls him, when he lost Wedderburn, it went to a distant relative and they managed to keep it in the family. And it operates now as a wedding venue. And my family still is in residence there. So it's just very meaningful to me as a descendant. And what makes me regret that I'm not Lady Laura of Wedderburn Castle. But that's just not the way it happened. I'm instead the great granddaughter of immigrant George who got booted from Scotland. So... Uh, it's just, a, and it's a magnificent looking. If you look at it on the back cover, you Google Wedderburn Castle. It's on Instagram. There's social media accounts dedicated to that castle and its history. It's just a very atmospheric, intriguing, kind of dark and broody looking castle. Even in the sunshine, it kind of looks dark and broody. When I was there, it was a sunny May day last year. It was just gorgeous. We walked down that driveway of what seemed like a mile and just saw it, beheld it there. And it, it truly extraordinary setting. And that always helps. Yes, makes it perfect for the story. But I love the castles in Britain and in Scotland because they go back hundreds and in some cases, even over a thousand years. And it's just you can almost touch history when you go and visit them. So it's cool to have this story set there. And to see that families often retain them over centuries. I posted one today that on my Facebook page that is actually a pink castle in Aberdeenshire and it in the snow and it's so stunning. And it's just as amazing that we have some of the same owners over time. That's remarkable. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Now, trust is one of the underlining themes in this novel. How did you explore that theme with Everard and Lady Blythe, especially given their situation, which means that their lives depend on trusting and not trusting the wrong person? Right. It was a time when you weren't always had to watch your back. Everard Hume is the new Laird of Wedderburn Castle, and he has a a large staff. And he has not only at Wedderburn Castle, he has two homes in Edinburgh. It was often townhomes, as was often the case. And so there's just this big network of servants, you know, who could you trust? You know, your neighbors, who can you trust? That becomes a pivotal point in the novel. Can he trust his neighbors? Can he trust the his parish? the pastor, the reverend in his parish. I think ultimately the novel is a, it's Everard and Blythe, the hero and heroine. It's a a matter of honoring and trusting what their fathers wanted from them. Everard is trying to honor his father's wish to give Blythe a refuge and sanctuary, not understanding or what those implications might be. And Blythe is trying to honor her father who is on the run and basically a fugitive fleeing the government, King George, who wants him out. He's a rebel. He's defying the king. So trust is, I think trust is an issue for every character in this novel and they handle it in different ways. So without giving away spoilers, I think hopefully it works and rings true. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it would be. And for, oh, and my heart just goes out to Blythe with her father being on the run and being in a strange place. You would feel vulnerable and desperate and need to trust someone. And then when you add the element of romance and that attraction, so you there's this pull, like this push-pull, like wanting to trust, but also not being sure, do I feel this because I'm attracted? And Right, you know, right. So. It's not only do I trust this man to give me refuge in this strange castle with so many brothers and so many servants, do I trust that? And then you add the, there's the added complication of, oh, I might be falling in love with this person. And that just is the icing on the cake, but adds another element of danger and bumps up that level of trust. So it's quite, quite interesting. It was quite interesting to write. (laughs) I think it's also a very relatable topic because hopefully in our lives, it's not our life or our livelihood that's completely depending on whether we trust the right person or not. But we often run into situations where, you know, to trust the wrong person with our secrets or our emotional vulnerabilities would be dangerous in the point that it would bring us pain or embarrassment. And so this this balance of you have two choices. You can completely shut up and trust no one, which will bring its own problems, or you can carefully learn who to trust and let God guide you in how you learn to trust your fellow humans. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I tried to portray in the novel. And every little step of trust that they took in obedience, basically, too, was resulted in something good. But it also required them to take another step of faith or trust. And it's very relevant, like you said, to our lives today, because we're always walking, hopefully, in obedience and in trust and surrender, which we have setbacks. But what's that saying? A long obedience in the same direction. We just keep going. 
Well, what are you working on next? Oh, my goodness. You know, what readers don't often realize, I've said it before, is that we're authors are usually, at least this author, is three books ahead of readers. So while we're discussing The Rose and the Thistle, I actually have long forgotten about that. And I have just submitted a new novel set in Nova Scotia, Acadia, about the French expulsion from there back in 1755 by the British. So that one is written and into my editors, and I just got that back for edits. And I'm also 10 chapters into a new Scottish novel set in Glasgow, Scotland, with those wonderful Glaswegians, fascinating tobacco lords. So I'm three novels ahead and not a lot of uh, time to think about this book, actually. Knowing you're in, right? You have written another one and are writing actually yet another one. So fascinating. I love it. Oh, that's cool. So, focusing on once again visiting Scotland and also visiting Nova Scotia, which is New Scotland. So, keeping that theme a little bit. New Scotland, exactly. Got some Scottish influence even in Canada there. So, for our listeners, Laura is offering a copy of The Rose and the Thistle. To enter to win, just check out our website, historicalbookworm.com, and you can just click on the giveaways page and you will find the link there. We also have a link in the show notes for this episode. And, Laura, where can our listeners connect with you? Oh, I have a beautiful new website thanks to Jones House Creative. And if you just wlrfrance.net, and I have a newsletter sign up that's about halfway down the homepage. And I have my social media links. I'm pretty active on everything but Twitter. I'm a Twitter dropout. But I send out a seasonal newsletter and I try to make it interesting. It's not just about the books. It's about me, my family, and other authors. And I'd love to have you sign up for my newsletter. And I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. So look at my author accounts there on my website once again. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so much fun discussing this new to us book, even though it's a little ways back for you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been delightful. Thank you, Darcy and Kylie. Now for a pinch of the past. We have a special guest hosting The Pinch of the Past today. Tish Martin owns Tish Martin Editorial. She is an author, coach, and book editor specializing in fiction and creative nonfiction. She also writes historical fiction set during the world wars. So Tisha, welcome to our Pinch of the Past. Hi, Kylie. It's great to be here with you. I'm excited about today's topic. Me too. So what are we chatting about today? Well, we are talking about just digging into the history of the town that you're writing about. I know that a lot of times in historical fiction, the town is the setting and it oftentimes the town can be a very big part of the story. So many famous people grew up in small towns. So for Illinois, the state of Illinois that I grew up in. Ronald Reagan, he grew up in Dixon, Illinois. And Abraham Lincoln spent his most formative years in New Salem, Illinois, when he was in his early 20s. So when I began writing, or when I began researching Lincoln, Illinois, the town that I grew up in and the town that I'm writing about, I learned a lot about the town's native authors 
And I'm going to be sharing two of them with you today. Wonderful. So much about historical fiction is just rooted in real history. And settings definitely play a big part. So I'm excited to learn more about Lincoln, Illinois, and these authors that you've researched. I am too. And when I started researching, I just, I was blown away by two of these authors because one I'd heard of and the other one I hadn't heard of before. The first one, he's a renowned theologian and an author, um, Dr. Reinhold Niebuhr, and he grew up in Lincoln, Illinois, and many of you might not even be familiar with him, but you are familiar with the Serenity Prayer. And he wrote and published that in the early 1940s. And a little bit about Dr. Niebuhr, uh, his father was the administrator of the -the state-of-the-art Deaconess Hospital in Lincoln. Um, And one of his brothers, Walter, was the managing editor of the Lincoln Daily News Herald newspaper until he passed away in 1946. And that's about the era that my first series is set in. So I was really excited to find that information. And Reinhold, he's best known for his gift of imparting wisdom. And one of the things that he said was that forgiveness is the final form of love. And a lot of what he's written about, like he writes about thought-provoking subjects, um, a lot of uh, theology and just exploring the spiritual spiritual life of man. So some really neat facts that I found out about him was that his photo was featured on the cover of Time magazine in 1948. And in 1964, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which I thought was fabulous. And then he was in the top 100 most influential people in the 20th century. Um, That was from Life magazine in 1990. So this man was so influential and he grew up in such a small town of Lincoln, Illinois. I mean, right now it has about a population of 15,000 people. So I had not really heard a lot about him until I obviously started researching. And then when I was a teenager, I loved going to garage sales and I went to one garage sale that was more like an estate sale and the home was being auctioned off. And this was the home of Dr. Reinhold Neubuer that he grew up in. And this was oh, the first wow. Yeah, it was the first time I recognized his name and then uh-huh. connected him with the poem, The Serenity Prayer. Um and you've you know and you've you've seen that in the on the front of journals and notebooks and you know mm-hmm. they use it in a lot of recovery groups and things like that. So it was such a fascinating uh, tidbit about this one author who grew up in the same town I did, you know, in the same town I'm writing about. Well, that's very cool, and I love the Serenity Prayer. I have it on a coffee mug. Um, even on coffee mugs, so... <laughs> they're ev- yeah. it's everywhere. That's so neat. And you mentioned that he was, you know, awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964. And that's the same year that Helen Keller was also awarded her Presidential Medal of Freedom. So that is so neat. That is. Yeah, they've had such influence and they're just such very special people, you know, Mm -hmm. just I think their minds and how they just were very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
All right. So who else was connected with Lincoln, Illinois? Okay. And the second person, the second author was William Maxwell. Now, you might not have heard of him, um, but he was one of the two local natives who wrote extensively about their hometown. And his stories are often uh, deep, and he explores social and psychological aspects of people living in a small town. Um, I love like small town stories. I like the social aspects of it and, you know, how did these people think? How did they live? And Maxwell did a really, really good job with that. Um, He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois in 1930. And he taught briefly, he taught English briefly at the University of Illinois before moving to New York, where he was the fiction editor for the New Yorker and worked with famous novelists, um, including Eudora Welty. Um, so he lived quite the, um, you know, quite the exciting life. He was very dedicated to his writing and to helping other writers just write really well. And I love what he says. He's like, that's what I try to do, write sentences that won't be like sandcastles. And when I saw that quote, I was like, I thought about it and I was like, okay, what does he actually mean? And then I realized, oh my gosh, this shows how thoughtful and precise William Maxwell was in his writings. Um, and it, it, it kind of, it kind of, you know, made him famous in many ways because he just was very clear in everything that he did. Um, and I also loved that he just had this flexibility in how he lived because another thing he said was, you know, it, it was the unexpected that happened always. So he's always prepared, you know, to know that life was not going to go as planned. And it, I think that mm-hmm. attributed a lot to um, just, just how he connected with so many people. Um, and his novel, So Long, See You Tomorrow, um, which is popularly attributed as his closest narrative to Midwestern small town history, um, where, you know, where he grew up, that book won the American Book Award in 1980. Um, And so he's often referred to as the writer's writer because of his craftsmanship and influence. It's a lot like Maxwell Perkins, who was one of the best editors. Um, So Maxwell is referred to as the writer's writer because of you know, just he just has that influence. Um, and I've really only just begun to really deeply research this author's life and read his stories and novels. So I'm excited to continue my sheet research. Um, for example, mm-hmm. like uh, the reason I am so impressed with William Maxwell is in my current work in progress, which is set right after World War II, I dive into the social history of the townspeople that my heroine journalist is writing about. And the more truth she uncovers about one of the oldest buildings in town, the more prominent folks will stop at nothing to silence her. So I'm excited to use the authors that I'm researching to kind of infuse my own books with um, just the little gems that they've already contributed very cool. And he was born in 1908. So are you tempted to like actually have him make like a cameo appearance in one of your stories? I could. I could because yeah. I think he went to I think he went to New York shortly after 
the 1940s. So I could kind of, you know, historical fiction, you yeah. kind of <laughs> rework those details a little bit. I could totally try. Oh, yeah. That would be fun. I I'm love it. For ways to do that. Uh huh. I love when I'm reading a book and there's a historical figure and they pop up and I go and research them and learn more about them. So neat. It is. It is so much fun. You could get lost in the myriad of history. Just love it so much. Mm-hmm. Well, Tisha, where can our listeners connect with you? They can connect with me best at tishamartin.com. Time for our bookworm review. The Cairo Curse by Pepper Basham. Clue meets Indiana Jones with a fiction-loving twist only Grace Percy can provide. Newlyweds Lord and Lady Astley have already experienced their fair share of suspense, but when a honeymoon trip takes a detour to the mystical land of Egypt, not even Grace with her fiction-loving mind is prepared for the dangers in store. From an assortment of untrustworthy adventure seekers to a newly discovered tomb with a murderous secret, Frederick and Grace must lean on each other to navigate their dangerous surroundings. As the suspects mount in an antiquities heist of ancient proportions, will Frederick and Grace's attempts to solve the mystery lead to another death among the sands? The Cairo Curse is a delightful sequel to The Mistletoe Countess by Pepper Basham in the Freddie and Grace Mystery Series. This review is brought to you by Christy Kay of the Historical Bookworm Review Team. Pepper Basham stays true to her trademark style of infusing romance, laughs, and danger into her stories for an unputdownable combination. Grace and Frederick leave for a honeymoon trip and take a brief stop in Cairo to visit with one of his cousins. When jewelry goes missing, an archaeological dig site is worthless, and timbers flare. Someone is bound to end up murdered. But with a large cast of characters, who will Grace's active detective imagination cling to as the culprit? Per all of Basham's books, the romance is on the sweet spicy side and the thread of second chances, God's plan, and faith to meet people who think they're too fallen for redemption is palpable. A few instances of mild violence at the climax, but the incidents throughout the story mostly happen off-screen. This is the second in the series, and there are several allusions to the instances in the first book, but it could function as a standalone. Except the first book was so much fun to read that I highly recommend reading that one, too. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.